Welcome to Hello Health Today, where health is a leadership strategy. I'm Dr. Carmen Mohan. In episode eight of this season, I said that for executive women, there are two primary obstacles to engaging the body's natural healing processes. I call them the villains of sleep and the thieves of time. In the previous episode, I talked about the villains who steal sleep away and how they're hard to see because they cloak themselves by shaping our attitude towards sleep and whisper to us, you don't need sleep, or when would you ever get to sleep, or the sleep she's talking about is just not that important. So by devaluing sleep, convincing us we don't need it, or convincing us we have too much to do to actually use sleep, the villains of sleep make sure we go without. I hope you feel better able to stop those bad actors in their tracks, and I hope by now you're starting to reap the benefits of sleep, so you'll never be fooled by those tricks again. Now it's time for us to consider their counterpart in bad actors called the thieves of time. The thieves of time are the exact opposite of the villains of sleep. Instead of creeping in quietly at night to do their stealing, the thieves of time are often loud, demanding, and self-important. They simply will not be avoided, and they make sure to present themselves in the middle of an otherwise productive day. The thieves of time are twin sisters called urgency and distraction. They are related because their primary mission is to ensure you miss out on activities that make life meaningful, enjoyable, and important. Activities that help you protect and enhance your sense of well-being all fall into these category of activities. If you often fall victim to urgency or distraction, you stand no chance of being healthy or feeling well. Because executive women operate in high-pressure work environments and make high-stakes decisions, urgency lurks around every corner. Urgency is demanding. She screams through the loudspeaker overhead and won't stop until she commands your full attention. She screams about pressing matters that are so important they feel like life-or-death, make-or-break situations. She's the one who yells, Somebody! Do something! Meanwhile, when you're feeling high stress because of these very urgent, often important tasks in front of you, your problem-solving brain is necessary, and that predisposes your mind to distraction. Your mind starts going, what information is needed to solve the problem? Is this new email important? Is it more important than this other thing I need to do? Quick! Be quick! Look through as much of this as possible! So urgency gets your mind all revved up. And then distraction starts interrupting your attention every eight seconds or so. It's really hard to calm down. Distraction is captivating. She's seductive and changes her disguises so you can fall into her clutches for hours, days, even months at a time. Some people call her procrastination. Others call her social media, television, trashy novels, gossip. She's the thing that can fill up your days, but never fill you up. She leaves you feeling ill, with no comprehension of how you got this way. Wondering why you feel so empty, asking, where did the time go? Sometimes, when she functions next to her twin sister, she takes the form of fear. When she does this, she can be lethal. I know this firsthand. I'd like to talk about a truly urgent situation in which I used to find myself frequently. It was called Code Blue. 
Code blue is the overhead announcement that there is an active emergency at the hospital. It means one of three very bad things. One, someone has been found without a pulse. Two, that person isn't breathing. Or three, is in some other situation incompatible with life. Code Blue directs everyone certified in advanced cardiac life support to respond immediately to a particular hospital location ready to perform resuscitation of the heart and lungs. So this goes beyond a sense of emergency. It is an emergency. Maybe sometimes you feel so stressed, you feel like you're going to die. Or maybe somebody else might die. Well, this is the stress of knowing someone else might die and being responsible for trying to prevent it. You literally stop in the middle of whatever you're doing and run to the patient's room. Earlier in my career, I worked as a hospital doctor, and so I responded to my fair share of these emergencies, literally life or death situations. So what would happen is I'd be doing some routine task, something low-key, like, say, typing a note into my patient's chart, when all of a sudden the operator's voice comes over the loudspeaker announcing, code blue, code blue, room one, two, three. After hearing this, my heartbeat jumps from resting around 60 to now pounding at 200 beats a minute, and I have to ask the nearest staff member what room we're all running to because I actually didn't hear the information. Urgency is like that. Important information goes flying out the window. When your heart is pounding, you feel afraid. Urgency is right at your side, alongside her, her twin sister, distraction. So now you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's an appropriate response. Someone is literally actively dying, and you're supposed to save them. You're a doctor. You're being paid to be at the hospital in the event of this exact situation. I want to see you and everyone else in a white coat running in the hallway. Hurry up. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you're probably also thinking, glad that's not my job. Well, here's the thing. There's a lot of different perspectives to consider in this situation. If you're on the team showing up for the code blue, or if you're the patient whose life is on the line, or the family member who loves the patient dearly, who you actually want arriving in a hurry at the bedside is a calm decision maker with the right professional training and expertise who can think. Calm decision makers are able to retrieve relevant information from their brains during times of crisis. Being calm makes you a good problem solver. It's a fact that when you are not calm, you just can't solve problems well, if at all. You might even make the problem worse because panic is contagious. When you feel panic rising, fear makes it impossible to act. You freeze. You hear helpless people who are also frozen say, somebody do something! And all the people who showed up to help will instead make the room so crowded, nothing effective can happen because no one can move. Not because everyone is frozen, but simply because there just isn't enough space. Everyone is distracted by fear, or worse, the possible outcome. The room is cluttered up with people and crash carts and credentials and good intentions, and yet nothing is getting done. Worse, the patient is actively dying with a minute left to go. Let me slow down these next 60 seconds. The patient and the code team are mirroring each other. The patient's heart is not pumping effectively. By that I mean the heart is not pumping in a way that is compatible with life. Sometimes the heart has been paralyzed by a series of electrical stimuli that are coming in so fast they can't be organized. 
and so the heart produces fast, ineffective ripples called fibrillations. On the other side of this mirror is the code team, whose hearts are pumping furiously, but whose brains are producing thoughts so quickly their bodies are either paralyzed or their actions are skipping over critical steps, rendering all other maneuvers ineffective. So, to be clear, all of the hearts in the room are moving too quickly. No one in the room is likely to be happy with the outcome should we allow this to continue for even five more seconds. What needs to happen is called defibrillation. We've all seen defibrillation on TV because TV likes to bring in high drama. So defibrillation, when it's made glamorous, is the part where George Clooney yells, clear, and the bodies jump because the patient's been shocked. Where TV gets it wrong is this. We don't shock hearts that aren't moving. We do chest compressions for those. No, we shock hearts that are moving too fast and in such a way as to be ineffective in pumping blood to the brain. So typically, in a code blue situation, three sets of defibrillation are actually needed. One defibrillation for the code leader, one for the team in the room, and one for the patient. What happens when we shock a heart? It goes from attempting to beat at 240 to 300 times in a minute, which is way too fast to be effective, to instead being completely still. You got it. After a shock to the heart, there's a pause on the heart monitor that feels like it goes on forever. Let me emphasize this. If we administer a successful shock, the monitor flatlines. There are zero beats. In order for a heart that is moving too fast or fibrillating to stand any chance of recovering a heartbeat that sustains life, it has to be given a complete pause. The pause is not a guarantee that a life-giving heart will resume beating, but the only chance for such a thing to happen, it happens inside the pause. If we leave the perspective of the patient now and reflect through the mirror, between the hospital bed and the care team, we come to see the frenetic, ineffective energy in the room. The only chance the team has to coordinate the life-giving measures happens inside a correlating pause. As the hospital doctor, my job was that of code leader, and I took it upon myself to administer the team shock. And my shock sounded something like this. I would stride confidently to the foot of the patient's bed, take a big breath, Puff out my chest and then announce in a booming voice, and I do mean booming, so loud it drowned out the heart monitor. I am Dr. Mohan. I am leading this code. If you are not necessary, leave the room now. Then I'd look at the person nearest to me, call him or her by name, and look them in the eye and ask, who called this code? The point is not that I'm going around giving orders. The point is that my tone, speaking to people by name, and looking them in the eye, issued a shock to the room that made everyone stop what they were doing, thinking, and feeling. For one thing, I never acted this way in any other situation. I was known for my smile, kindness, and being pretty soft-spoken. For another, I have a relatively small body frame, and I think it's a little non-sequitur to hear me boom my voice so it bounces off the wall and reverberates. I developed a reputation for being a good code leader, not because my teams always got the outcomes we wanted, but because I helped the team be organized coordinated, and effective at administering the right therapies as called for by the situation.
As a result, we took advantage of all of the knowledge in the room, not just what I brought, but also the nurse who was primarily taking care of the patient, the tech who was the last to actually see the patient awake, and the ER staff who had technical abilities we needed to establish access. The physically fit staff would do the chest compressions, and the ICU nurse made helpful suggestions for other supportive measures we could begin. All of us could feel confident that we'd actually done everything we could because we worked as a team. But the key thing to note here is the teamwork didn't start until after the pause. Let me just say that I'm not somehow morally superior to other folks. The thing that separated me from other code leaders at this particular time in my life was my ability to be calm under pressure. That is, my ability to stare urgency directly in the face and not blink. This meant that I was not easy pickings for her sister, distraction. Distraction wears many guises, and one of them is fear. Fear intercepts all useful thought. Luckily, because these thieves are related, the antidote to them is the same. I'll be the first to admit that I am definitely not fearless, but I am able to respond to urgency with calm. So the twin sister thieves of time don't often get away with stealing from me. How do I produce this calm? Well, for starters, I tend to operate on enough sleep, so my mind is already functioning on all cylinders. Put simply, I've made myself a harder target. For another, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for almost 15 years now, so I've had some time to strengthen my ability to be calm under pressure. I see meditation practice as vital for anyone who needs to make really good decisions and who wants to trust that she led her team to do the same. And finally, when urgency presents itself and I feel afraid, I take a big, deep breath. In high-stakes situations, I don't try to rely on my mind first. Instead, I use my mind's innate abilities. When I breathe deeply, I activate my body's parasympathetic nervous system. This is the body's natural, calming nervous system, which lowers my racing heartbeat. And that gives me enough of a pause to my reaction Within that pause, I can feel my mind switch away from fear to instead choose calm. And once that happens, the rest looks easy. My professional training can take over. Think about how this concept might apply to you. Does urgency at work steal away your time for self-care and professional well-being? Do you get distracted from investing the time you need to feel full and revitalized? Is your team running around in a frenzy but not producing the results that you need? Does urgency at work produce fear for you? Forms of fear are present whenever the huge downside looms large in your mind. It can be a sense that you'll never get this chance again. A sense of doom. Your reputation will be ruined if this product is not excellent. Playing for high stakes like in a court of law where the winner takes it all. If you don't play your cards right, your business won't get funded. If your team member presents poorly in front of your boss, it reflects poorly on you. You need to present on stage at a conference, and you don't feel well prepared. These are very real, very negative possibilities. Urgency makes them more likely to occur. You stand no chance of using the vast resources at your disposal if you allow urgency to hold the door open for fear-based distraction. Here are some steps you can take if you're ready to adopt the stance of the code leader. Number one, don't let the thieves of time gang up on you. 
understand that urgency and distraction are the thieves of time. These twin sisters work together to waste away your time and effort. Investing in high-quality sleep will create a natural buffer between you and these thieves by making you a much harder target. Number two, if you don't have one already, begin a regular meditation practice. Meditate for a minimum of five minutes every day. When you feel urgency taking over your life, meditation is even more important, but urgency will tell you that you just don't have the time. Trust me, you have five minutes. You always have five minutes. Those five minutes are the difference between you making decisions based out of fear and distraction or making decisions that uniquely contribute. Number three, when you're facing urgency at work, stare it in the face. Take a big breath or even three or 10, as many as you need to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Doing this uses your body to help your mind in real time. It creates the necessary pause between the stimulus and your reaction. This is how you defibrillate yourself first. Finally, number four, once you're feeling calm and purposeful, address your team. You must have your team pause if you want them to start working together to address the issue at hand. Tell them, everybody take a big deep breath. Insist upon it, and you do it too. When you see the collective big breath, you can literally see everybody calming down. Let the pause happen. The power is in the pause. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. The pause allows us to choose a response. Then, let professional training and experience take over from there. Until next time, remember, today is good. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Because I am a medical doctor, it's important for me to tell you that nothing I say here in this podcast can substitute for your doctor's advice. My lawyers make me say the same thing this way. The contents of this podcast are neither intended nor implied to be relied on for medical diagnosis, care, or treatment concerning any individual. Under no circumstances does this podcast create a physician-patient relationship, nor does it constitute engagement in the practice of medicine or the provision of any healthcare service to an individual patient. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnosis and treatment. Consult a healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or to obtain guidance about any medical conditions. The producers of this podcast expressly disclaimed responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of reliance on the information contained in this podcast.